All right, it's a big week for fans of fantasy stories. Uh, probably one of the most important questions we had to figure out with the mission trip was whether everyone was going to go see Harry Potter the day it got released on Friday or we were going to wait till we were on the trip on Saturday and see it all together. So they assured me they will have seen it by the time they get on the mission trip. Uh, when I was a kid, back in the day, we didn't have Harry Potter. We had the Chronicles of Narnia. That was good stuff. Not that Harry Potter's not good stuff, but yeah, the Lord of the Rings, but you know what? I read that as a college student. I didn't, I didn't understand it until I saw the movie. So the Chronicles... <laughs> Mordor, God, I didn't know the difference. The Chronicles, I grew up on the Chronicles of Narnia. My family read it together. I read it on my own. I got to read it to my kids. They were the best, still are. In the silver chair, I thought actually the silver chair was the most logical to be made into the next movie. I read on the internet that apparently the magician's nephew is going to be the next one. I don't know if you saw that. But the silver chair... If you remember, those who have read it, the plot, I'll just quickly summarize, is basically Eustace Scrub, who was in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and he's been to Narnia before. Uh, he and his classmate Jill Pole wind up in Narnia. Actually, they get pulled into Aslan's country early in the book. And Aslan meets with Jill and tells her that she is going to have to go on a quest, on an adventure to rescue the missing Prince Rillian. And he tells her that you will have to remember four signs that I'm going to give you. Memorize them, repeat them to yourself every night, and they will guide you on this quest. And so Jill reunites with Eustace, and they start into their quest. The four signs are that Eustace will meet up with an old friend and he, he must go and greet him immediately and they will get help. The second sign is that they are to go north to the land of the giants. The third sign is that they will see writing in stone in that city. And then the last sign is that they will know the prince because he will be the one who will ask them to do something in Aslan's name. Is this coming back to you guys remember all this well try as she might Jill remembers the signs for a time she repeats them to herself but they totally miss the first one right Eustace sees King Caspian now he's no longer the prince and he, re he doesn't recognize him so he doesn't greet him they miss out on that and then throughout their adventure Jill just forgets the signs. She's too tired to repeat them to herself. Sometimes she doesn't even recognize the signs till after they've happened. I won't spoil too much about it, but go and read them if you have not read them before. Our text this morning, Genesis chapter 12, the second half of that chapter, brings us back to Abram. As you remember from Jeff Lee's sermon last week that we were introduced to Abram, who God had called out, called away from his family, his land, everything he had known, 
and called him to a new place. He had promised him great blessing, descendants, even though he was an old man and he and his wife had no children, he promised great blessing and that he would be the father of many nations, of a great nation. Uh, So Abram, we see he moves around, he, he follows God's commands, he's faithful, he starts building altars where he goes to celebrate God's promises and to say that I am faithful But today, the tone of the rest of chapter 12 is a little different. Abram gets to Egypt, and he stops building altars. And he starts panicking. He starts shading the truth. He starts not trusting God quite as much. And like Jill Pohl, he forgets the signs. He forgets God's commands God's promises and the character of who his God is. And he begins to act out of fear and disbelief instead of faith. So let's read Genesis 12, 10 through 20. I don't have it up on the PowerPoints. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister, and that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai. Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did she say, Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Egypt was often the closest place to Canaan, the promised land, that wasn't experiencing famine and drought. Their water supply depended on the the height of the Nile River, which in turn depended on the rainfall in Central Africa. It's a completely different ecosystem, different area of the world than the Middle East. And so you see God's people going to Egypt when there are problems, where there's famine. Now many commentators see this as the first step for Abram into unfaithfulness. He's been called into this land and maybe the famine is a test. 
Maybe Abram's supposed to stay there and, and God will bring food to him miraculously. And that may be. Matthew Henry, however, some other commentators say, mm, no, he was just being smart. God sent him there. It was a famine. Uh, go find a place where you can get some food. And the fact that he headed to Egypt is actually a sign of faithfulness because it's the opposite way from his homeland. And if he had headed back, that would have been the sign of unfaithfulness. So I'm not sure which it is. The Bible doesn't tell us that that move was in faith or out of faith. But what we do know is that as Abraham gets, as Abram gets close, he begins to fear. Now, this is the first time that Egypt is mentioned in the biblical narratives, and it's, of course, very significant to the original readers. Remember who was hearing this for the first time, the wilderness generation. Remember, Moses is leading the children of Israel, the people of Israel, through the wilderness to get to the promised land, and they wander for 40 years. They don't know it's 40 years. They know it's a long time. And they lose heart. And they lose hope. And so while we affirm that Moses knew he was writing the first five books of the Bible as history that that would be read for generations to come, and he knew that he was setting out the history of how God had been dealing with his people, he also structured it in a way, I think, that the original audience saw themselves in the text, or got great encouragement from these stories. Moses is reminding them through these historical accounts that God is faithful, that God's enemies aren't so big and bad. He's dealt with them before very easily, and that they don't need to be afraid. Remember when they get to the promised land? They're giants. We can't take this land. Moses is constantly assuring him, yes, God is greater than that. If you are faithful, you will be rewarded. Continue on to the promised land. Now, a careful student of Scripture cannot miss the parallels between this short story that we've had, 11 verses, and the story that takes up the first half of the book of Exodus the story of the Exodus, where Moses led this generation, the, the generation that goes out into the wilderness, out of Egypt. Listen to these parallels. The first one is that both times they are forced to Egypt by famine. All right, we've, we've seen that detail in this text. If you remember, the Israelites are then brought to Egypt by famine much later when we get to the story of Joseph at the end of Genesis We'll remember how through a series of events he was brought to second, second in command in Egypt and he stored food for seven years and for the famine that came for seven years and then his brothers, his 11 brothers and his father and all their houses, the entire Hebrew people end up moving to Egypt to be cared for by Joseph. Second parallel is that then they are both, in both accounts, are they mistreated in Egypt, and they are used for, by Pharaoh for his purposes. Here, Sarai is just taken, added to his harem. 
He plans to make her his wife. With the Exodus people, the Israelites later, they are made Pharaoh's slave force. They end up staying there 400 years. And Pharaoh enslaves them. And that's why God has to send Moses to set them free. Third thing, if you notice, it was a quick detail. I hope it jumped out at you. God sent plagues on Pharaoh. I mean, that's one of the more famous parts of the later story is that God sent 10 plagues and Pharaoh kept, I might, no, I'm not going to let you go until the final plague of the death of the firstborn. The fourth parallel here is that then Pharaoh finally does relent and release the people. It seems like here it's, it's a little quicker. It's God has given Pharaoh some kind of insight that this man, this woman that he's taken has caused great distress on him and his household, so he needs to give her back. And maybe Sarah, I told him, or he asked Abram, but he figures it out pretty quickly. And finally, God's people leave Egypt with great wealth. Did you catch that detail? Abram takes everything that Pharaoh's given him, just as later, as they're leaving Egypt, they plunder Egypt and take all of the wealth of Egypt with them out into the wilderness. There are just too many parallels to be a coincidence. And it's Moses shaping the story. Shape, it's a historical account, but it has a purpose. And so this discouraged wilderness community, Abram or Moses is saying, listen, Abram has went down to Egypt, had a bad situation. God brought him out just like he did the same for you. And Abram continued in faith towards the promised land. You need to do the same. So if you've wondered why that this text is in here, why this account, and there's going to be a few others like this as we go through Genesis. Let's look a little closer at the text, at the threat to Abram's marriage and the peril of losing his wife, Sarai. Now, I hope that you're not scoffing that the Egyptians would find a 65-year-old woman irresistibly beautiful. Because we know many women at that age, so beautiful. Commentators also said, you know what, as they lived longer, this was maybe middle age, maybe even before middle age. And they speculate that maybe the Egyptians were darker skinned and Sarah was fair skinned and so it was kind of exotic for them. And uh, I don't know, but the Bible says that she was beautiful. Abram says, you are a beautiful woman. And sure enough, he ca- she catches Egyptians' eyes when she comes in. And most likely, Abram thought that if someone wanted to marry Sarai, they would have to work through him, his, the brother, to arrange the marriage. And I think he was figuring, he was hoping that he could kind of draw out the negotiations and stall until the famine was over, and then he could leave. And she would still be his. But I don't think he was counting on Pharaoh immediately taking her into his possession. And so the elaborate gifts from Pharaoh are a dowry, right? The custom at the time 
was to pay the father or the brother, the closest male relative for the woman that you are taking away from their family. Uh, Pharaoh doesn't ask for Sarah. He just takes because he's the ruler. But he does compensate Abram. And you see the list of things. I think that when a young man wants to marry one of my daughters, we may charge a camel, a goat, a donkey, and a few sheep. That sound like enough? More? So the young men might, might want to start saving up. It's an interesting custom, isn't it? We find out later in Genesis that Sarah, Sarai really is Abram's sister. It's his half-sister. And we have here the half-truth. But certainly not the most important part. The fact that they are husband and wife is so much more important. And Abram admits that he doesn't want that part to be known. And so even though Abram has built altars to God in faith and been obedient up to this point, ultimately he shows that he cannot trust God with his wife or his life. He has very little regard for Sarah as well, it seems like. Hey, why don't you lie so I'll be okay? God's promises of a great nation coming through Abram and his wife are put in jeopardy. And yet, one of the promises that Jeff talked about earlier in the chapter, in chapter 12, is that God promised that those who bless you, he would bless, and those that curse you, he would curse. And so this seems to be immediately put to the test. And Pharaoh learns that it is dangerous to deal with God's man, Abram. He probably thought he was doing a good thing, showering gifts on Abram, but he didn't realize that he was threatening the most important thing to Abram, his wife, and, and threatening the plan of God for the creation of the Hebrew people and the establishment of these, their descendants, ultimately that would lead to the line of Jesus Christ. It is the line of Jesus Christ. You do not want to get in between God and his plans because you will be mowed down. Abram gets through this experience much richer. He has his wife and her virtue still intact, the the potential for descendants. The promises are still there at the end of this. And we hope that Abram has a renewed appreciation for God's power to deliver him from difficult, dangerous circumstances. And yet, stay tuned. Abram continues to show a lack of faith. As we go through Genesis, we'll see it over and over again. Abram is both faithful and faithless. But we have a lot of characters in Scripture who show us that. Just one New Testament example, the Apostle Peter. In Mark chapter 8, there are two stories right next to each other. 
The first one is the very famous story where Jesus asked the disciples, who do you say that I am? And Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. Peter's got faith. The immediate next story, Jesus is teaching the people that the Son of Man will suffer and be killed and be raised. And what does Peter do? He rebukes Jesus. And then Jesus rebukes him right back. Get behind me, Satan. Peter believed. Peter had faith, but he didn't believe. This is the man that stepped out on the water in faith and started walking and then looked down and realized he didn't really believe and started sinking. A father came to Jesus in the next chapter, chapter 9, Mark 9. His son had an unclean spirit, basically a demon, who was tormenting him. And he asked Jesus for healing for his son. And Jesus says, all things are possible for one who believes. Do you remember the man's response? I believe, help my unbelief. Now, that phrase used to puzzle me when I had a child's faith. Because to me, that didn't make sense. Buddy, you either believe or you don't. Pick one. Which is it? But as I've lived a few years, I get it. I really get it. That's one of the most honest things you can say to God. Is I have faith, but I still struggle. I still have doubt. Help my unbelief. When it comes right down to it, I make a lot of decisions that show that I don't really trust God. We can make the profession of faith and say that we believe in God and accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That is saving faith. And yet inside we doubt that God is really as powerful and faithful and protective as he says he is. And our actions betray our creeds. And that was Abram. Abram was essentially saying, I believe your promises, but I don't really trust you. I don't really believe that you'll keep me safe in Egypt. What does that look like in our lives? I think there are many, many ways this manifests itself in our lives. Let me suggest just a few. I'm not going to hit this very hard because John already did. But God has promised to provide for his children. God has promised to throw open the floodgates of heaven to bless us. He said that if you sow generously, you will reap generously. And yet, we don't totally believe that. It is hard to trust him with our finances. We constantly worry about not having enough. Another area, God has promised and told us that his standard is marriage that will bind two people as one. 
and be the fulfillment and perfect expression of sexual love. And most Christians would say, yes, we believe that. And yet, many will deny it by partaking, by eating of that forbidden fruit before marriage, essentially saying, God, I don't trust you to meet my deepest needs. I don't trust that if I delay that gratification, that it will be worth it. Do we trust the Lord with our children? We had a baptism today as a reminder of God's covenant to families. And we know that we can trust the Lord with the lives of our children. And yet, we often act and live as if we are responsible for our children's souls and their protection. All of these things, there is a balance. We are called to be good parents, to raise our children in the scriptures, to discipline them. We are called to do our part, of course. And yet at a certain point, at every point, if we truly love our kids and trust the Lord, we turn them over to him and trust him. Many of you might know of Luis Palau. He's a famous evangelist. And I I knew his family a little bit because I taught with one of his sons. And three of his four sons followed the Lord. No wavering, committed Christians into adulthood. And yet one son, Andrew, essentially said, I I guess I believe all that stuff, but you know what? I'd rather party. I would rather walk away from the church and just live how I want to live. And it grieved Luis and his wife, Pat, and their whole family. And they prayed and prayed. But they surrendered Andrew to God. They still loved him. They still presented the gospel when it was appropriate. But ultimately, they said, Lord, he is in your hand. And Andrew has come to know the Lord again and embraced his faith. Maybe the last area I'll suggest is that we try to earn our salvation. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith it is not of works, and yet something in us says, I have to earn it. It's too easy if God just gives it to me. I have to earn my salvation These are just a few of the areas where we are like Abram and don't really believe God and his word. You could probably take any promise of scripture and see when I don't trust that, it works its way out in my life in a negative way. And we sin and we mess up our lives because we don't trust him. As I was thinking this through, I I realized that even Jesus had a moment, probably many moments, of, of doubt and fear. If you remember, as he's praying in the garden, he says, Lord, Father, take this cup of suffering from me. He wasn't sure. Human 
Jesus was fully human and he did not want to experience the pain of the cross. And yet he immediately says, thy will be done. Ultimately, God the Son trusted God the Father and followed through the plan of God to save his people. Jesus was not like Abram, whose faith faltered and led him into sin and danger. Jesus was the ultimate faithful servant of God. And his perfect obedience achieved perfect righteousness for each one of us. If Christ had not been faithful, if he had fallen short in any way, he could not have been the perfect substitute for our sins. The bottom line is that God is faithful through all things. He, is, he was faithful in Abram's life even when Abram doubted and sinned. He was faithful when the Israelite community was out in the wilderness crumbling and complaining and building idols and wanting to go back to Egypt rather than press on to the promised land. He was faithful through the entire line to the Messiah and in Jesus' life through his death and resurrection. And God is faithful even when we sin and bring shame to the name of Christ. God is faithful to those he has called. I want to give you four signs, just like Aslan gave Jill. Memorize them, great. But think on them. You'll at least think on the themes. Elisha, give us the first one. The first sign. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Essentially, the first sign is that God saves us from our sins through Jesus Christ. So the first sign is salvation. Second sign is Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Okay, we have salvation. We cannot lose it. God cares and preserves his people. Third sign, therefore do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The third sign is that God can be trusted to provide for his children. And the fourth sign in 1 Peter chapter 1, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So the fourth sign, well, let me go through them. God, God saves sinners through Jesus Christ. He carries that salvation through to the end. We cannot lose it. 
God provides for his children, and finally, our ultimate hope and destiny is heaven, which will blow away this earthly life. We must have an eternal perspective. Dwell on those scriptural promises, admonitions. Keep them close to your heart. Study all of scripture, sure. But here are a few signs that will guide you along the way. And if we lose sight of basic truths like these, we will act in unbelief. So I'm going to tell you essentially what Moses, who wrote this text that we studied today, told was, was expressing to the wilderness generation, you may sin and be unfaithful like Abram was, but God will still be faithful to those he has called as his children. And he still expects you to continue in your journey to the promised land. Lord God, thank you for the book of Genesis. Thank you for the rich study that we are doing as we examine every passage, as we see every genealogy, every small account that Moses recorded as inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you that Abram was not perfect because we are far from perfect. And we all have Egypt's in our lives where we approach and we stumble and we falter and we lie and we protect ourselves and we don't trust you. And yet, you show yourself faithful every time. Lord, it may not look like we expect, but God, you love those you call. All things work together for the good of those who love you, who have been called according to your purpose. And Lord, that may, that may be a martyr's death. That may be uh, imprisonment and persecution. But Lord, we trust you with our lives. Lord, we believe and yet we need help because we don't believe. And we doubt and we flee all of the time. And yet you are faithful. Thank you, thank you for the sacrifice of your son, the perfect obedience of his life that gives us abundant life here on earth and eternal life in heaven. God, thank you for this, this morning and the worship of your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and...